our sin, and then we find that God has provided the solution to the human problem, not that, not that people need to live up to the standard of righteousness that, that God has laid out because they cannot, because of their, their inner nature and their, their failings, but God has, has given Christ. He sent the Lord Jesus to live the life that we could not so that we could recover our relationship with him and God would then consider us righteous. He would count us righteous. He would then give the Holy Spirit to us and enable us to live a holy life. And that brings us to to Romans chapter 8. And then in Romans 9 through 11, we see how the plan of God works out so that none who God calls to himself, he he fails, uh, he never fails them. He never uh, holds back anything from them. He fulfills all of his promises to them. And so that brings us to Romans 12, where Paul then begins to speak not about what God has done, but about our response to him. Uh, there's, a, there's a danger that we can, uh, that, that we can uh, run into when we're reading these kinds of passages. As we, as we move from Romans uh, 11 into Romans 12, the, the, the language will shift from God has done to you must do, right? And the danger is that we may suddenly begin to think, oh, I'm not living up to this. Oh, I, I, I fail. Oh, I struggle. When what we're finding in the beginning of the book is that, is that God has given, God has enabled, God has blessed, and therefore you are righteous, right? We have to hold on to that and carry that in to the later chapters. I got to read because I'm already preaching. Um, and so, so I'm going to read. Uh, we're going to start in verse 14. We're going to move to 21, but be encouraged As you hear this, not, I'm not living up to this, I am a failure, but instead, be encouraged that the Spirit is in you and will transform you if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. This is what Romans 12, starting in verse 14, says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what, to, give, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and to hear your word. We thank you that you speak to us, Lord, about good things. You speak to us about the future, and you tell us about how you are coming to rescue us from everything that troubles us. You speak to us about salvation and about care and about love and and about how you will never leave us or forsake us, and we thank you for all that. But Lord, you also speak hard and difficult things about how you call us to live because we need direction and guidance because without it, we would wander and fall into all kinds of sin and wickedness. And so we thank you that you are laying out a standard for us, that you are calling us to a better way of living, that you're calling us to hear the truth, to to learn about Jesus, and then to say, yes, I want to live that way. Not so that we can repay you for what you've done for us in Christ, but so that we can simply say, thank you. We express our gratitude to you for what you have done by living like you call us to. And so we say now, Lord, speak to us, teach us, 
Transform our hearts and minds. I pray if there's anyone here who has not put their faith and trust in Christ this morning, that they would see the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of your way. And that they would believe the good news about Jesus. We pray this, Lord, knowing that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, something happens when you are suddenly brought into a, a, a friend group. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced this where maybe you, you move into a new area or you uh, have some kind of life change, you, you, you change jobs, or you're, you're suddenly doing something that you've not normally done before, like taking your kid to, uh, to flag football, right? You know, this is, this is something that's new for me. My youngest, you know, he's, he's doing upward flag football. And so I'm out on the ball field, Right, you know, and, 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 and he's out on the field doing his thing, and I'm standing around these parents that I don't know, right? And I'm, I'm not the kind of person who's just like, hey, everybody, let's be friends, right? You know, but, but people will, will enter my personal space by talking about, oh, you know, your son is a beast out on the field, right? You know, and so they will make contact. Is number one yours? Yes, number one is mine. Yes, he. He is a performer, and when he fails, he fails big. He, he yells and, ah, you know, and when he wins, he wins big, you know, and he's like, does victory laps and these kinds of things. And so people approach me, right, and once we talk, you know how this is, you, once you talk to somebody, the expectations change, right? You see them the next time, you're supposed to acknowledge them and be like, Hey, and then there's that weird, like they didn't make eye contact with me and I keep trying to make eye contact because I want to make sure that we make contact so that we stay friends, acquaintances, and so that it doesn't become weird because there's that thing where you make eye contact or you make contact with somebody and then you don't make contact with them and then you see them again and then you're like, I had a good contact and a bad contact like a, or a non-contact and now I want to, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's weird. Aren't people weird? It's strange. When we have a relationship with people, our interactions change. As long as, as long as the person serving you your food through the drive-through window is just a voice, you know, and not a human being with a name tag and a name that you know, like they're just they're a disembodied person that you can you can treat any way you like, you know. When uh, when Sam was working at Dairy Queen. You know, he would, he would have people pull up and, uh, you know, because he's like, he is just uh, uh, fully engaged all the time in whatever relationships he's got going. And so people would, people would pull up to the drive-thru and he would say, you know, welcome to Dairy Queen, can I take your order? And they'd be like, is that Sam? You know, like people knew who he was and they were excited and they'd give him tips and stuff. It was like, they, he was a human being and they treated him differently because of it. When we come into a relationship with God, our lives ought to change. Things about our life ought to change. Not because we have to earn the relationship. Not because we have to maintain the relationship or purchase it. God has, has given us righteousness in Christ. We've, we've failed to live up to God's standard. That's what Romans 1 through 3 says. And then Romans teaches us that Jesus came and lived that perfect life for us. He, he was absolutely righteous. He lived by the power of the Spirit. And that if we put our faith in the work that Jesus has done on the cross for us, taking our sins upon us, we will receive the very righteousness of God by faith. And then Paul spends all these chapters uh, from, from Romans chapter 5, Four and, and 3 and 4, all the way up to, to Romans chapter 11, talking about the benefits and the blessings of believing and receiving what God has done for us. And it's something that God gives to us that we're called to live in. Then when we get into Romans 12, we start learning that our relationships have changed. Our relationship in verse 1 and 2 of Romans 12 says that our relationship to our body has changed. We're to offer our body as a living sacrifice. Our relationship to our own sense of self has changed. In Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, we're to develop a sober self-image, right? We ought not think more highly 
than we ought to, right? Not, I'm a horrible, scummy sinner who can never uh, do anything that even is remotely good and God hates me. That's not a good image. We're supposed to understand that God loves and cares for us, but that, but that sin is always crouching at the door and that we're not all that in a bag of chips, as my wife would occasionally say. You know, not about me ever. I am all that in a bag of chips to her. She's not here to object or laugh. Uh, so thank you for support there with the laughter. Um, you know, what, what, what we have to do is we have to say, I am not perfect. I am not, you know, the, the greatest thing that has ever lived, but God loves me. He cares for me. And therefore, I have a place and I can contribute to his work. And then last time that we were together, we looked at Romans 12, 9 through 16, about how we're to love one another in community and how our relationships to brothers and sisters in Christ change. Paul turns now to the topic of our enemies. And this is an amazing thing. That when we come into a relationship with God, the way that we treat our enemies changes because of the way that he has treated us, who were his enemies. We've already seen this topic pop up in the area of community in verse 14 of Romans 12, where we were talking about inside of the, uh, inside of the church or inside of the family of God. Paul drops in this verse 14 where he says, Bless those who persecute you. Sorry, he doesn't drop in a verse. He drops in a sentence. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is a way that, that we act towards those that we love. And even those we don't necessarily love and who don't love us. So we're, we're starting to see as we're working through this, this passage, this verse, uh, verses 9 through 16, that there are always going to be problems in community and that there's a proper response to those who don't talk nicely about us. But we've seen, we've seen the idea that, that, that bad is going to be uh, in our lives and that there are going to be bad people and people that, that we don't like and who don't like us. We've seen them as persecutors in verse 14, but now Paul, Paul lays it out plainly that there are going to be these people that we encounter who we might consider our enemies. Now, many of us, because we understand that the Bible teaches that we ought to love our enemies, we might say, I don't have any enemies, right? But I think if we're honest and we understand that that it is okay to admit that we sin, right, and that we fail, we can probably develop a list of people who might maybe be our enemies, right? You know, we, we, can, we can do that, right? And then maybe later we'll just cross off the word might maybe and we'll have a list of, of, of enemies. Like, what, 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 is, what I think is, is, is true is that there are those people that you work with who are always messing up. Right? And always doing stuff that gives you more work. And they're never doing their job. And everything would be better if they would just vanish. Right? That's an enemy. Yeah. Your boss who oppresses you and who is rotten to you and doesn't treat you well, that, that's an enemy. Right? But maybe, maybe, you're, just, maybe you're like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good follower of Jesus and I intend to do the right thing. That's, that's fine. Okay? But in your heart, there are these people that you just are, you've got this, you've got this category for. People that we love but don't like, right? That's an enemy, okay? For some, our enemies at times can be our own children. Our enemies, not you guys. Shh, I'm not talking about you. Uh, at times, you can be in an adversarial relationship with a parent. Uh, many, many times over 15 years in ministry, I have counseled with couples who they once loved one another or thought that they did and entered into an arrangement together and now are living separate lives as enemies to one another. Uh, enemies are everywhere. And an enemy doesn't just have to be an opposing military force that is like hunting you and trying to kill you. It, it can be somebody who 
frustrates you to the point where you have a feeling that lives within you a set pattern of behaviors of animosity toward them, okay? What, what I think we could call this, right, is we could call these behaviors that we want to display toward them, we could call it the faux code, all right? F-O-E, right? Here's the faux code, right? What we want to do is we want to curse our enemies, whether we, we want to do this out loud or internally, like we, we say, like, oh, man, you know, that person, they are so dumb. They're horrible. They're whatever. Any list of names, right? Curse them. Second, we want to repay them. They treated us a particular way, and we want to, what, get them back, right? We want them, maybe we don't want to be engaged in that, right? We don't want to, we don't want to be the agent of that. We want them to get what's coming to them, right? Because... What goes around comes around, right? We say things like, be careful whose toes you step on on the way up, you know, because you're going you're gonna to run into the same people on the way down, right? That's all repayment language. We want to get revenge. And we want to overcome the evil that they've done to us with evil that falls upon them. That's just the gut. Like, it's, it's in there, that, that hot flash of anger that appears when somebody wrongs you. It's just like, I want something to happen to them. Paul shares with us in this passage four negative commands. Don't do this, that govern how we ought to behave towards those who have wronged us or those who we have this sinful desire to see them wronged or see wrong happen to them. He says in verse 14, don't curse them. Verse 17, he says, don't repay evil for evil. In verse 19, he says, don't take revenge. And in verse 21, he says, don't be overcome by evil. Revenge and retaliation are not the way of the followers of Jesus. In the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus, the Old Testament is very clear about this. We need to restrain the inner emotional desire to act like a baby, right? He did it first, so I'm going to do it back, right? You know? You get this chain reaction where, where it's he did, and then he did this, and then this one did this, and that one did that. And it's just over and over and over, and as you're picking it apart, it's the conflict is first them, and then the other, and then the response, and then the action. And you trace it all the way back, and it's just like, whoa, look at the chain. That's what babies do, right? Then there's this, like, villain, you know, twist the mustache kind of behavior that is I will set things up to make sure they get fixed, you know? That, that I arrange it so that at some point, man, things are going to come to a crashing halt for them, like setting up this giant scheme to see them undone, gossiping about them at work and turning friends against them and, you know, just, just setting up things to eventually harm them. What's important to see in this passage is that Paul is going to say that there is a place for justice and punishment and that evil that is done to us is evil, it is wrong, but it's not, it's not something that we are allowed to bring into our own lives, our own personal conduct and avenge for ourselves. We are not to get back at those who harmed us. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Jesus says in Matthew 5.39, do not resist the one that is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says in Luke 6.27, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And then we find all the way in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. 
Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me, right? That's, that's, we're back at the baby level, right? Don't say that, is what it says in Proverbs. But Paul doesn't just put us in a place where, where he outlaws the foe code, all right? Because that's not where, where, where God sits in relation to us. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I, I, have, I have these enemies out there. God doesn't say, I have those who, who resist my will, and I'm just not going to harm them. Instead, he says, I'm going to go to them and make peace with them. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to put in practice a plan to redeem them and make them family, right? Paul dispenses with the foe code, and he introduces, come on, you know it's coming. The bro code, yes, here we go, yes. And thank you for the groan out there, I love it. He, he prescribes the antithesis of each behavior. He says, your natural instinct is to do this, but, but we want to see change. Your relationship to the Lord has changed, and therefore your relationship to everything has changed. And so we ought to see a change in the way that we handle our bodies and a change in the way that we perceive ourselves and the way that we perceive and love others. And also we ought to see a change in the way that we treat those who we are frustrated with or those who have hurt us or those who have wronged us. And so there are four changes, I believe, in this passage. We've already talked about one. The first one is that we change our language. We change our language. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When someone wrongs us, it becomes very easily, it becomes very easy to emotionally engage this, this part of us that says, they have no talents, they have no abilities, they have no skills, they have no value, they are just bad, right? Come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? Instead, what, what Paul is saying here is that what we ought to do is to change the way that we think about those who wrong us, and we ought to change the way that we speak about those who wrong us. Instead of persecuting them in return when they persecute us, when they curse us, when they say, Keith is dumb, the gut reaction is to fire back and say, no, they're dumb. Or any number of probably more impolite things that some of us think or struggle with, but which are not suitable for saying in church. Instead of persecuting, we turn around and we bless. Often, the opportunity comes when somebody who knows about the conflict or who knows about the difficulty comes to us and wants to say, do you know what they said about you? Do you know what they think about you? And we have an opportunity to say, oh, you know what? Like, we're, like, like they are the message carrier, right? You know, they deliver the message. They said that you're no good. And then we're like, oh, you know what I think? And here, I'll put a little message in your bucket. You send it back to them, right? There's an opportunity to change the story or to change the direction and to say that this is a person who's created in the image of God and they have value and worth. One of the ways that we can, we can change the, the language and change the story is if there is a conflict just to be plain and to address it. Hey, I think you and I don't see eye to eye about this directly with the person. You know, you obviously don't like me because of this. That's my perception. But here's my read on the situation. Here's, here's my take on it. Or when someone says, they said that you're no good at this or that, to respond to them and say, well, that's their opinion. And to not persecute in return. But even to take it a step further, not just refraining from cursing, but to say, you know what? They may think that. I respect them because they're good at what they do. But I don't agree with their opinion. We don't need to allow our behavior to be defined or controlled 
by somebody else's actions or behavior. When we allow emotion to determine our behaviors and our actions and not our thinking and our understanding of Christian principles, we are allowing someone else to control us. Does that, does that make sense? Somebody curses us and we curse in return. Somebody blesses us and we bless in return. Jesus says that the Pharisees do that sort of thing. And it's of no benefit to them. No, the transformation of, of, of bad behavior and bad action is a mark of what it means to follow Christ. Change the language. language. Sex second, change the, the currency. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a universal command here. Repay no one. Talks about the behaviors to be engaged as being done in the sight of all and to live peaceably with all. He's, he's saying here that see that your, your public behavior is above criticism. When, when we think about other people defining our actions, many times when we just live in this, in this realm of, of emotional reactions, it's somebody did this, and they, and they pay an action toward us, and we think, I need to respond in kind, right? I need to lash out at them with an insult, or I need to, to respond in hurt. Many times we're just thinking about this internally because we fear the, the consequences of the law or of, or, of, or of taking a negative action. What will other people think or say or do if they find out that I'm being petty or angry about this? But we're still struggling with it inside. I mean, we're holding on to it, waiting for an opportunity. Now, what Paul says here is that we ought to refrain from repaying them with evil, yes. But we ought to use different currency to pay them back. They have done evil to us. We ought to pay them with good. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. They are not at peace with you. You, if possible, live at peace with them. They have done you evil, verse 17. Instead, respond to them by doing what is honorable in their sight. What Paul is saying here is that it's contradictory to refrain from evil and not to do good. We don't just say, I'm not going to pay them back. We say, I'm going to respond differently to them. To refuse to repay evil is to take the first step and to not throw gas on fire, right, with, with conflict. To refuse to repay evil is to say, I'm not going to make things worse. But there's an additional step, right? You can, you can view the phrase, stop fighting, in two ways, right? The first way of viewing stop fighting is to cease hostilities, right? Like stop punching. But the second way that we can view stop fighting is to take a step forward and to, to look at it as an act of doing good, which is to restore peace or to make peace. Not just to cease hostilities, but to renew brotherhood or to engage blessing or to, to, to restore friendship. Now, this is not always going to be possible because it depends on the other, the way that they respond, the way that we continue in harmony with them. What, what Paul says, he says, if possible, so there's a condition there, and as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with, with them. Sometimes people aren't willing. Sometimes they are just so dead set on maintaining and continuing conflict. Sometimes people have a hardness of heart or they have an agenda and they are just going to continue to roll over you. What is the response to that? That we say, you know what, they have no intention of ever doing good. I'm just going to, I'm going to continually fire back at them. No, it's, it's, we may not be able to live peaceably with them, but we don't repay them for what, the, they, what they have done. We instead do good. God sent the Lord Jesus into a conflict to make peace. 
Ephesians 2.14 says that he is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is an ethnic wall that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. He has abolished the law of commandments established in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see that? He, he doesn't just say, stop fighting. He creates peace. That's the good news about Jesus. Not that he comes and says, this is right and that's wrong, stop sinning, but that he makes peace through his death and unites. So first, change the language. Second, change the currency. Third, change expectations. Change expectations about what's going to happen with regard to enemies. Paul says here, don't avenge yourself. If you are a passionate, warm-blooded person, this is going to be difficult because we want to pay people back. Instead, he says this, leave it to the wrath of God. That's the first thing that he advises. The second thing that he says is serve your enemy. Talk about a controversial statement. People think that the Bible says all kinds of controversial stuff, right? In our, in our culture, uh, comments on homosexuality or the role of, of women in the uh, elder position in the church. These are controversial things, right? You know, that, uh, the, the fact that we believe that God created the world is controversial. I think those are far less controversial than serve your enemy. That's really hard. That's really difficult. People consistently disobey this command because one thing I believe that we have been taught in a Rambo culture, right, you know, in a, in a like defiant American movie culture is that the one thing that you are allowed to do is, you know, when the law won't come to your aid, take justice into your own hands, right? We've been trained that way, to think that way. This is what video games and movies and TV shows are about. Do it yourself. You have a right to. I don't know that I've ever seen a TV show where somebody wins by serving their enemy. One of you will text me something, I'm sure. I found a movie. It's cool. If you do, that'd be great because that's a pointer to the gospel. What, what Paul says here is he speaks in verse 19 to the beloved. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why and how is he able to speak to the church as the, the beloved? One, because he has genuine love and care for these people. They, they were once two different groups. It was Jews and Gentiles, but now they're one in the church. And he loves them, and he knows that they are loved by God, and therefore they are his family. He also calls them beloved because he's calling them to follow the way of love. And the way of love says, don't avenge yourself. Instead, engage these two positive behaviors. First, observe the fact that it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Some versions translate it this way, leave room for the wrath of God. I like the way that that sounds because we're not saying that what somebody has done to us is of no consequence. That the way that somebody has hurt us or the way that, that we have been damaged as a reaction to their behavior, that it's, that it's no big deal, that it's okay. Instead, what we're saying is God will handle it. God will handle this wrong. And when someone wrongs us, think about it, Two things can happen with the wrong that's been done to us. Either it will be judged on the last day and punished, right? And someone will get what they deserve for hurting us. Or that sin is put on Christ and forgiven. 
in which case the punishment for it has been paid for. And if we take vengeance on them because of it, if we punish them, the payment has, has been paid by Christ, but now we are exacting a payment of them as well. The Lord knows what he will do. And so we're to leave room for the wrath of God. The scriptures assure us, this is from the mouth of Jesus, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself there, that's his code word for himself in the book of Matthew, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Christians get real nervous, they read this, and they're like, he's going to repay me. No, the account is going to be read, and the payment for what has been done is going to have been put on him if you're in Christ. But judgment will come, and it will be thorough. And those who do not have their sin covered by the Lord will be punished. Repaying or judging of evil is not evil. It is good, but it is now the prerogative of God. He is the one who judges and who pays. We're going to see in Romans 13 that God uses the government as an agent of punishment and judgment. And so it's one of the reasons why Christians can say, I'm not going to take vengeance for myself. And it's a big issue that we'll talk a bunch about when we get into Romans chapter 13. But Paul says that the wrath of God is being held back by God, that he is restraining judgment because he desires many to repent and to make peace with him. We see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I should have put the next verse in here, but I didn't. I'm going to turn to it. He says this, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and his patience? There, there are people who are storing up wrath for themselves by never repenting and never saying I was wrong and never saying I'm, I'm sorry because they think that a delay of judgment from God means that God will not judge. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Delay of judgment, delay of punishment should not demonstrate or indicate that God is weak. It should demonstrate that he is kind. And for us as well, for believers, when we hold back, paying someone back, many times it makes us feel weak. But what we ought to feel is that we are imitating our Father who is in heaven. That we are imitating our Lord who behaved this way on earth. That this is the way that he acted. That this is the character of God. Right now in this day we are not the agents of God's vengeance. Instead we are called to display and embody the peace of God. And to be agents of peace in the world. This is the way that Jesus lived. He didn't take vengeance for himself. And he calls us to do the same thing. Instead of taking vengeance, we're called to serve our enemy. Man, a number of years ago, I think we were a bunch of, uh, me and a bunch of my friends, we were out playing um, airsoft, you know, the little guns that shoot the little pellets that sting. And so we're out. And this group of guys rolled in, and man, they were just, they were so, uh, they were the worst. If they were on the internet, we'd call them trolls, right? And they were just, they were just toxic guys, and man, you know, they were, they were the rottenest. I just, they, they, they ruined the morning, you know, I took time away from my family, you know, I left Nancy home with the kids, can I go play? Yeah, sure, I'm go. And these guys show up, and they're ruining everything. Well, you know, they decided they didn't like the way that we played, and they left. They peeled out, right? This has got, I mean, this has got to be nine years ago now. So I've grown a lot since then, okay? <laughs> Don't judge me. I've repented. Well, so they left like an hour earlier, and we continued to play. And then, right, when we were leaving, I'm driving down the road, and as I'm going, I see them on the side of the road. 
and one of them's got the hood to their car up. And I thought, yup, I don't believe in karma, right? But look, you are getting what you deserve. You deserve car trouble because of who you are in your inner nature. Sinner, you know? <laughs> have you ever done this? Have you ever, have you ever done this? Come on, don't leave me hanging out to dry here. You know, you know that you have felt this way before. No, it's, it's not just leave room for the wrath of God. Like, oh, look, there it is. You know, there's the judgment of God on them. <laughs> right? They have been punished. What we do is we say, God has his part, and he has his moment, and he has his way in their situation. But then our orders are clear. I'm not going back to this story, folks. I'll let you figure out the implications of what I did. Paul says instead, serve your enemy. It's written in one place, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, defining God's job. But then in verse 20, to the contrary, it is written in another place, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And what's being said here is that our actions are to be actions of peace and love and kindness. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now in Romans, when you read the literature, the meaning of this phrase is highly debated, right? Either it is a symbol of the wrath of God to come on them, like I'm going to do good and that's going to increase your accountability and your judgment, or some scholars have said that there's some penitent ritual among the Egyptians where they would like, you know, when they were, when they were repenting, they would like put this thing on their head and fill it with coals, and that's weird. There's no precedent for that in the Bible. I'm not saying people who believe that are weird. I'm just saying... I think, like, really? That just seems strange. What I think it means is this. That it is a vivid and visual illustration of the, the, the pain or the reaction, the shame and the remorse that comes when someone is rebuked by someone else's kindness. You've, you've had that experience where someone has wronged you and you experience the hot flash of anger, right? You're just like, that's not right. <sighs> you know, people would say they see red. You know, steam comes out of their ears. Cartoons are useful for this, right? You know, like, <clears throat> but have you ever, have you ever had the experience where you have thought bad things about someone or you have assumed someone's motives or you have said something bad about someone, and then they have done something good, and you feel the burning of the shame when you think, like, I am such a creep. You ever had that? What, what Paul is, is saying here is that there is a way of advancing the gospel and of advancing the will of God and the way of God by serving others in love. When Jesus went to the cross, there were people who mocked him and accused him and who made fun of him. And when Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, he preaches in this way. He says, you are the ones who killed him. And 3,000 people repented in that day. He confronts them with the wrong that they had done. They put him on the cross, and they were punishing Jesus, right, for things that he said and he did. But then Peter says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself there, and they killed him, and he was serving them, and they are, they are cut to the, to the quick, right? Stephen cries out, Father, forgive them. Right? He cries out, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And what happens in the very next chapter? Paul is confronted with the fact that he is persecuting the church, that he gave approval to the death of Stephen. Many, many, many times 
We hear in Christian history of those who have done despicable things and have been repaid with kindness, and that has been what has led them to repentance. The scriptures say that we are ambassadors urging people to be reconciled to God, right? We tend to think of this just in terms of evangelism or delivering the message, right? Like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the script off the track in my conversation. I'm going to say, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I have been an evangelist. But we are also evangelists when somebody treats us wrong and we don't repay them and instead we are kind to them. And it is an internal, emotional conviction that they feel. And they say, what in the world is that? And it convicts them. The alternatives to revenge are to leave it to the judgment of God and to serve your enemy. And this is the example of Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you know what that is a code word for? They were hurting him and punching him and persecuting him and whipping him and mocking him. And he could have said, enough of this. All of you die, right? He has the power to do it. But instead, he trusts his father and goes to the cross and serves them in love. I I think that this was probably, well, this was the most intense trial of his life. Yes, there was a temptation to avoid the cross and to say, swap out the cup and give me a different cup. But then he had to persevere and endure through all of the pain. Psalm 37, verse 5 and following say this to us as believers. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, we're all probably all in agreement right now. Like, yep, wait for the Lord, trust in him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. He's saying, don't worry about that person. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Oh, this person isn't just somebody who's over here who's living an evil life. They're, they're somebody who intersects my life and who has hurt me. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, right? Now I'm fretting and I'm worrying and I'm trying to figure out how do I get this person back? And then he says, the writer of Psalm 37 and verse 9, For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And so what's being said here, right? Change the expectations of what's going to happen when you're wronged. Change the currency. Change the language. Finally, change your overall reaction. Summary statement. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the most important Bible passages on how we treat our enemies and those who've wronged us is in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And if we stop the verse right there, it's just a command to be obeyed. This is what the verse says. It is connected to power. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And we were greater enemies to God in our way and the way that we live than anyone has ever been to us. We have been forgiven so much more And so how do we overcome evil with good? We refuse to curse and we bless. We refuse to retaliate with evil and instead we do good. We leave revenge and vengeance to the Lord. 
and we embrace working for the good of our enemies. This will be difficult. It will require much prayer, much dependence. It will require probably having a good friend that we can say, oh, I just cannot stand this person. Pray for my heart that it would be changed. And it will require coming before the Lord consistently and saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. But this is the good news about all this as we close and pray. This is a work that Jesus calls us to embrace and engage as his followers. It is a loving thing. It is the way that he chose to live, that the Spirit empowered him to live. And the Spirit will empower us to be these kinds of ambassadors as well. So my encouragement to you as we close is this. One, if, if you have not put your faith and trust in the work that Jesus has done on the cross, and, and you can't say for sure, 100%, that you know that you're at peace with God, trust in the work of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on your behalf. They have brought peace. They desire to be at peace with you if you will admit sin and embrace and seek his righteousness. Second, we have an amazing opportunity to live an incredible ministry of reconciliation in our interpersonal conflicts if we are willing to believe it, to receive it, and to embrace it. It's intensely personal and intensely difficult, but by God's grace, he will enable us to do it. First Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is the one who calls you, and he also will do it. So let's follow the Lord in what he calls us to, not to earn his affection, but because of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to hear and to share your word. I pray that none of us will think that it is easy to live this way. You call us to do difficult things, but you assure us that the Spirit will be with us and working in us and ministering through us and enabling and empowering us. And so we thank you for what you will do by your grace and for your glory. We pray that you would help us, Lord, first to wrestle with these truths and to agree with them. Yes, this is from you and it is good. And then we pray that you would help us to say, create in me a clean heart. Help me to desire to live this way. And then that we would pray, Lord, help me to carry it out. And that we would walk with you and live in your strength. For your glory and for our joy, we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.